Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. It has been a bombshell legal week. You've heard us say that before, but it certainly was this week. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm going to talk all about the leak of the draft opinion in the Dobbs case. That is the case that is most commonly known as the one that will overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So let's get into it. First, I want to talk about the draft opinion itself, and next I want to talk about the leak why it was leaked, who might have leaked it, so many different places to go. But first, let's start with the draft opinion. It's by conservative justice Samuel Alito, and it is a caustic opinion. He pulls no punches. This is an opinion where he says Roe was an egregious decision. This is not a pulling back of Roe. This is a full-throated overturn of Roe v. Wade. And it looks like at least when he circulated the opinion, that he has four conservative colleagues who joined him. Because again, this is a draft of the majority. Now, what do we know about the opinion itself? Why does he overturn Roe v. Wade? What he says here is because there is nowhere written in the Constitution the right to obtain an abortion. It's a quote-unquote unenumerated, meaning unlisted right. He says it is unmoored from the Constitution. Basically, it's just something that judges made up. And so what he says here is it has no place in the Constitution, that the federal Constitution no longer protects the right of women to obtain abortions. We should pause here and say that his reasoning really calls into question not just the right to obtain an abortion, but a lot of other rights. So we have a constitution, which I think is brilliant in the sense that it has vague language. It's maddening, but it's brilliant because the framers knew that this was a document that was going to have to live beyond a few years or even a few decades. And so there aren't a lot of specific definitions. There are broad words that are supposed to guide us for centuries Words like equal protection, for instance, words like liberty. And so when we're talking about the right to obtain an abortion legally, how did that start? Well, we have the 14th Amendment, and in the Due Process Clause, it says we are protected in our liberty interest. This all goes back to this word liberty and what falls within it. And what the court said more than half a century ago is that in that word liberty, the right to privacy is protected. And what is included in the right to privacy? It began really as a right for married couples to obtain contraception, then for unmarried couples to obtain contraception, and then for people to pick the partner of their choosing to marry. Maybe that person was of a different race. Maybe that person was of the same sex. There's also a right protected in the right to privacy regarding how you want to raise your children, how they should be schooled. And of course, maybe the most famous part of the right to privacy, the right to obtain an abortion. And so in this 98-page draft opinion, Justice Alito says, I don't see that right to abortion anywhere written. And so what I want to flag for everybody is, if that is true, if that is truly his problem, 
then what about the other rights that are not listed in the Constitution? What about the right to obtain contraception, also protected under the right to privacy? What about the right to marry the partner of your choosing, also protected under the right to privacy? Now, in the draft opinion, Justice Alito says, I think very disingenuously, don't worry. This is just about abortion. It's not about the other rights that you might be worried about. If you look at the logic of this opinion, if you look at the fact, again, that what he's worried about, supposedly, is that this isn't written in the Constitution, then we absolutely need to question what happens to the Obergefell decision, that fairly recent decision that says same-sex couples can marry. And what happens to older decisions that say states can't ban your ability to obtain contraception? If we're being honest, those decisions, again, I think also now we need to question whether or not those decisions will be challenged. I think the answer is that they will be. So what we're seeing here in this draft opinion is that the court took door number two, by which I mean, I've talked to you for a long time on this podcast about, well, there's two options for the court in taking up this case, which is a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And I said, I think given that this is a very conservative court, that the court could either say, we're upholding the 15-week ban on abortion, so Roe is still the law of the land, Casey is still the law of the land. But it's just a much, much narrower promise and protection than you thought that those cases were giving you. That's door number one. I think that's what Chief Justice John Roberts wanted. Door number two is what the court decided to do, it looks like, which is, no, we're just overturning Roe. It's not that it's a hollow promise. It's not a promise at all. Now, what's going to happen as a result of this draft opinion? Well, if there is no longer a federally protected constitutional right to obtain an abortion, it means it's left up to the states. And what this means in America is that about half the states will either completely ban abortion or will significantly restrict women's access to an abortion. And so women will live in two very different Americas. There will be the America in blue states where you can obtain an abortion. And then there will be the experience that women have in red states, where there really is either no or practically no access to an abortion. Now, this will, of course, just exacerbate the fault lines in American society. So what happens typically when a state restricts abortion, or as what we're about to see, a state outlaws abortion? Women who have resources will travel to neighboring states. And that's why I think that the next thing we're going to see here is that red states will try to prohibit women obtaining an abortion, not just within their boundaries, but also prohibit women from traveling outside of their boundaries to obtain an abortion. We've already seen Missouri start to take steps to do that. And then we will see blue states like Connecticut just a week ago passing a bill that said, no, if you want to travel into the state to obtain an abortion and your home state tries to punish you for that, we will not cooperate with your home state. And in fact, you can counter sue for damages. So one of the big things to come out of 
this draft opinion in Dobbs, if it is in fact adopted, is that we're going to see a battle between red states that say, we can reach into your blue state and try and prohibit our residents from obtaining an abortion, and blue states saying, no, you can't. And that's a state-to-state battle. I think we're also going to see a federal-to-state battle. And what that means is, right now, on the federal level, there is a program that allows people to obtain abortion pills. And right now, on the state level, we're already seeing red states either try and ban those abortion pills or get ready to ban them after this Dobbs decision comes out. What does that mean? It means that on the federal level, we have a program that envisions the distribution of abortion pills, that allows the distribution of abortion pills. And then we have states that are going to ban the distribution and use of those pills, which I would say frustrates the purpose of a federal program. Why does that language matter? Because under the Supremacy Clause, when state laws try to interfere with or frustrate the purpose of a federal program, then they are in fact preempted. But what are we going to see here? There's going to be this battle between the federal government and the states. So as a result of the Dobbs decision, again, it's going to be blue states versus red states with respect to traveling outside of a state to obtain an abortion. And then it's going to be the federal government versus states with respect to this issue of dispensing abortion, something that we talked about in more detail in a prior episode of the podcast. Now, the next question is, why Justice Samuel Alito? Why is he the one to write this draft opinion? Let's talk about the way opinions are assigned. So if the chief justice is in the majority, meaning if he's going to vote to overrule Roe and Casey and say there is no longer a constitutionally protected right to obtain an abortion, then he's going to be the one to assign the case. If he's in the minority, then it will be the senior most member of the minority who assigns the case. And that would be Justice Clarence Thomas. What I think is if Chief Justice John Roberts was in the minority, meaning if it's left up to Justice Clarence Thomas to assign the opinion, I suspect that he would assign it to himself. It's just a hunch, but I think he's been waiting a long time to overturn Roe and Casey. He has not made that a secret. And so it's hard for me to think about why he would want to give that up. So let's imagine that Chief Justice John Roberts is, in fact, the one who assigns the opinion. Why does he not keep it for himself? Well, I think because he probably wanted a narrower ruling. He wanted what he talked about in oral arguments, which is let's uphold the Mississippi law that's the 15-week ban on abortion, and then we don't have to have that opinion that says we're overturning Roe, and we can leave it for another day. And so the chief justice himself isn't going to write the opinion because he doesn't want to go the way the other justices in the majority, in the conservative majority, want to. So why would he then assign it to Justice Alito? Well, one option is he offered it to somebody else, let's say the newest justice, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and she declined. I thought, and maybe this is too simplistic, but I thought that there was at least a chance that he was going to say, this is going to look better if a woman writes the opinion 
that overturns Roe. Again, we don't know what happened in that case. So back to why does the chief justice assign this to Samuel Alito? If we look at the language here, which is so, again, I think caustic, so aggressive, I suspect that what the chief justice might have wanted to do here is to try and control Justice Alito. So this is the first draft. It's going to be the most strident. And I think part of assigning this to Alito is saying, Alito, if you want to keep a majority, you're probably going to have to pare back on the language, make it softer, make it smoother. And so by assigning it to Alito, the chief justice, who again cares about the institution of the court, is I think in his own way trying to protect the opinion or trying to protect his interests in the opinion as much as he can. Again, we're just theorizing at this point. In all honesty, I did not predict that this opinion was going to come from Justice Alito. What about the dissents? So it's all but certain. We've seen the reporting that Justice Breyer, Justice Elena Kagan, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the liberal justices, that they will write dissents, one or they'll each write a separate dissent. What do those look like? Again, my guess is that it's Justice Elena Kagan who's going to write the dissent that says it is complete hogwash to say that this opinion won't affect all the other rights that are protected under the right to privacy, that there's no way based on your rationale, Justice Alito, that you can say, don't worry, this isn't about gay marriage. It's not about contraception. It's not about marriage in general. It's not about the right to raise your children the way you want to because abortion is different. I think she's going to show, of course, abortion is not different. And here's how the dominoes are going to fall. And then again, a guess here, I think Justice Sonia Sotomayor is going to say, as she often does, let's remember what happens outside the courtroom. Let's remember the real people who are going to be affected by this decision. Let's remember the teenage girls who could be raped and will not have access to an abortion. Let's remember the women whose lives might be threatened and will not have access to an abortion. I think she's going to write the dissenting opinion that really brings home what this means for women in America. And then the question mark is Justice Breyer. It's his last term on the court. Will he take this as an opportunity to write a separate dissenting opinion? Again, we don't know the answer to that, but if I had to guess, he would either join an Elena Kagan dissent or he would write separately, again, on this topic of the right to privacy and why it's important to protect it. One other thing on this issue of unenumerated rights that I think we're going to see in the dissenting opinions here. We should be really careful about we only protect things written in the Constitution. One, because the Ninth Amendment basically says, look, we didn't get to write everything down. The Bill of Rights is not an exclusive list. And two, because even the things that are written down don't tell us exactly what's protected. So let's think about equal protection. We basically know what those words mean, but we don't know, and we had a disagreement about whether or not that meant schools that are, quote unquote, separate but equal. Does equal protection allow that? We now know that, of course, it should not. But even the words that are written, it doesn't always answer the question. So I think that we should be careful about 
saying, well, if it's not specifically written in the Constitution, if it doesn't specifically give us guidance, we don't know. Again, I think the Equal Protection Clause absolutely requires that schools be fully integrated. But previously in our nation, we had disagreement about that. Now, let's talk a little bit about the leak itself. Now, I, over the last week, have done a lot of interviews where I keep using the word unprecedented because it is no time in modern history have we had a leak of a draft opinion like this. The Supreme Court stands on top of the judicial branch, which is the branch that operates in the most secrecy. It's the least transparent. And the justices literally will hear oral arguments. Now, finally, they're live streamed with respect to audio only, not video. And that's the most public moment, really, that we have with respect to what the Supreme Court does. They literally go behind a curtain and then their decisions are made and the opinions are written and edited in secrecy is really a phenomenal breach and potentially a phenomenal betrayal that someone leaked this draft opinion. I say potentially because we don't know if a justice asked a clerk to leak this, but certainly it is a betrayal with respect to the norms of the court. And the norms of the court are absolutely crumbling. I wrote in an MSNBC piece that it feels like the wheels have come off and I'm not sure how much longer the car can drive without wheels. So who has the motivation to leak this? I understand that my view was more of the contrarian view in the beginning of the week. I think maybe now it's more of the majority view. I'm not sure. But I think that this was a conservative clerk. Let's talk about who could have leaked this and why. So there are nine justices. Each justice has four law clerks. So we're talking about about 45 people who would have access to this draft opinion. Now, I don't think it's one of the justices on his or her own. I could be wrong, but that to me seems like even in this Supreme Court, which I think has been politicized and is a political body in so many ways, even for this Supreme Court, I don't think a justice directly goes to a reporter. Again, I'm guessing I could be wrong here. But I think either a clerk acts on his or her own, or we have a clerk acting at the behest of a justice. I'm going to go with a clerk potentially acting on his or her own. And why a conservative clerk? Well, for a couple of reasons here. I think, one, by putting this draft opinion out there, you're trying to keep the majority together. So to the extent that, for instance, Justice Brett Kavanaugh was potentially going to leave the majority and join with Chief Justice John Roberts in a narrower opinion, which would say something like, we're upholding Mississippi's law, the 15-week ban, but we're not overturning Roe, that to the extent that Justice Kavanaugh wanted to change his opinion, it would now look like he's just bowing to political pressure, which is not a good look. Why else would a conservative want to leak the draft? I think because now we're talking not just about Roe v. Wade being overturned, but we're also talking about the leak itself. We're also talking about the Supreme Court as an institution. And so in that way, it kind of diffuses the story. We're not just upset or we're not just having a conversation about the decision. We're also having a conversation about the leak. And then 
related to that, let's look at the electoral calendar here. The midterms are coming up. I think this is a decision that is likely to energize Democrats. And so to have this conversation where it's all but absolutely certain that Roe will be overturned, to have this conversation in the beginning, middle of May, as opposed to the beginning, middle of July, I think that helps Republicans because they're hoping that the rage on the left will basically fizzle out, that we'll grow accustomed to this decision, that we won't be able to mobilize for that long. And therefore, that if you look at the midterm elections, the more time you have between a flag of what the opinion is going to be and the elections and people going to the ballot box, the better. Again, this episode is a lot of, I'm guessing, a lot of theories, but this has truly been an extraordinary week. I will say personally, I was doing something on my somewhat rare personal time Monday evening. Suddenly my phone blew up and I it was basically an art project that I was doing. I put it down and it was draft opinion leaked overturning Roe. And I honestly didn't believe it at first. And the thing that I think I will leave us with is that you can expect something. We have been talking about the fact on this podcast that Roe v. Wade is likely to be overturned for probably more than a year now. You can expect it, but then to see it in black and white is still stunning. To realize what a different country this will be very soon, it's still stunning. So I want to thank everybody who listens for listening in on these conversations. I hope that they help you think through what happens during the week. I'm extremely grateful to all the people who are listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe, please rate, please review. You can find me across the socials at Levinson Jessica. And we're going to be talking a lot more about this soon. And I'm going to wish everybody a restful time at some point in the next week.